Uh, the picture here and the phrase here is where I want to end up today. Father, what do you see? Father, what do you see? In 2 Kings chapter 6, it records a story of Elijah and he's in a place called Dotham and the king of Aram is chasing after him, hunting him. And this enemy king finds out where Elijah is and in the night moves armies and troops to surround the place where they're staying. Elisha's servant, sorry, gets up and... And he goes, I guess, to stretch in the morning. What else do you do in the morning? I'm sure he did all those things. And then he looks out into the fields and he can see these troops, these, these enemy forces. And the man says in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, he says, Oh no, Lord, what shall we do? Oh no, Lord, what shall we do? I think there are moments where we can relate to the servant of Elisha. We often ask these sorts of questions. Oh, Lord, there is trouble in front of me. What do I do? How do I handle this trouble? I'm suffering. What is going on? I feel stuck. How do I get through this? Everything at the moment just seems hard. Everything at the moment just seems overwhelming. What do I do? I feel exhausted at the moment. Lord, Lord, what do I do? I feel like I'm ready for something new. I'm stuck in a rut. Lord, what do I do? A couple of verses after the servant asked this question, Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Those that are with us. Are more. That is a statement of faith. That is a statement of faith based in promise. But Elisha didn't stop there. You know what he does next in the next verse? He says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And in that instant, his eyes were opened and he could see chariots and the armies of heaven all around them. So the question is, are our eyes open? Are our eyes open in this sense? Father, what do you see for me today? Father, what do you see for me tomorrow and for next year? Father, what do you see for me for the next 10 years, for the next 20 years? Father, help me to see what you see. Lord, we pray this morning that we would have ears to hear, that, Lord, we would... Receive your word. Let it enter into our hearts and our minds. May we be inspired by what you have to say about us. Lord, I pray for each person here today. I pray that you meet them where they're at. Lord, we come before you and we lay everything down at the feet of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. There's a picture of a cathedral in Cologne and Pastor Ralph has been talking about this cathedral since he returned from Europe that took 600 years to build. That's a long time. Apparently the Holy Roman Emperor Barbarossa, he, he conquered and, and captured relics that they believed to be relics of the three wise men. I guess one smelt like myrrh, one's Frankenstein, I don't know. He had these relics 
and he brought them back to Cologne. So many people wanted to see these relics that people were flooding in from everywhere to this city. If you were running a bakery in that place at that time, business was booming. They decided that they needed to have a facility, a place to store the relics that was uh, comparatively like that in Milan and in France, Amiens. I think I said that right, Amiens, Amiens, Amiens. Where's Patricia when I need her? So they built and embarked on this huge cathedral that took 600 years to end up completing. What sort of a building committee would you need to get that done? What sort of vision statement would you need to convince the next generation that the costs were worth it? What sort of commitment would you require from the builders to get the job done the way that it needed to get done? Maybe something more relevant to us. We have a church camp coming up, October 12 to 14. I went to booking.com and I wanted to book a room at the Burj Al Arab. And um, uh, we're actually thinking about having our camp there next year. But after seeing the prices, $8,200 US for two adults and three children in the cheapest room possible. Now, I was encouraged because they did include breakfast... And they did include airport transfers. So that was encouraging. 1.5 billion US dollars to build this hotel. This is a big structure. This is a, an expensive structure. This requires a big vision. This requires vision to be shared about what we want to build, about what we want to do. Yet how much bigger is the vision of the church? How much bigger is the vision that we're part of? How much bigger is that compared to a cathedral building and compared to this beautiful hotel. What I find interesting though is that vision isn't just for us, vision is, is for me and for you. Somehow in the wisdom of vision, the vision that God has for my life is not exclusive to the vision he has for us and our lives. Would you agree with that statement? The vision that he has for me, what he has for me to do and what he has for you to do fits together in the vision of the church. In this place, in this house, he is, he is building us together, each individually with a vision and a plan and a purpose so that we might fulfill the vision, plan and purpose that God's placed before this church. Vision for me is not exclusive to something which is shared what is the vision for my life? What am I planning for the next two years, the next five years, the next ten years? You think about the major decisions you need to make. You think about investments that you need to make. These are big choices, big decisions. What are you planning in terms of the way you want to live your life and where you want to live your life? But why does all this matter? Well, one reason is that vision really informs the now. The vision ahead informs the now. Another reason is, is that what it means if you're without vision. And Scripture has some things to say about that. And finally, vision is wise. Vision is from God. There is wisdom in vision. There's a great proverb, 29.18. One translation says, Without prophetic vision, people run wild. But blessed are those who follow God's teaching. Who hears run wild every now and again? 
Who's thinking about running wild at lunchtime? The writer of this book of wisdom, this is embedded in a book of wisdom. The writer of this book says that vision is wise. Prophetic vision, without it, we run wild. Now, when I think of wild, I think of kind of 1980s movies wild. That's not the wild really meant here. Wild means there's no restraint. There's no clear purpose. It's a bit like those signs that are just going everywhere. A a wild life is a life where you can't really understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't achieve anything. Without vision, we just run without intention, depth, direction, emphasis. We have no penetration in this life. Vision is important. After all, as we heard prayed this morning, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, God has the best plans for us. God has the best vision for our lives. God has stated it in his word. It's a promise. It's important that prophetic vision is something that we ought to follow, that ought to lead and guide us. But importantly here, this connects prophetic vision with following the teachers, the teachings of God, the teachings of Jesus. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a disciple. That sounds like a follower of Christ to me. But Jesus even said, you know what, this whole vision thing, this whole discipleship thing, you need to be really careful. Before you embark on being my disciple, you need to make sure you've got what it takes to get the job done. You know, you don't just go to war without working out if you can win. You don't build a cathedral or a hotel without being sure you've got enough money to finish the job. Because if you can't finish your job, it's just going to look silly. That's what Jesus said. So vision and and having a plan and having a promise for life is something that we need to very actively and forcefully enter into and follow. It's part of what it means to be a disciple. So let's unpack this idea of vision a little bit more with some images. For some people, they talk about vision for their life or purpose or a plan or, or a message or something that sustains them. They talk about it being a true north for them. Have you heard that phrase before? That's my true north. That's what I'm meant to do. That's what I'm here. That's, that's, that makes sense to me. It's kind of like a true north for them. It, it, it helps them to stay in the direction upon which they're called to go. Another image is this one of, of glasses. This works for me personally. Um, vision gives clarity to see what needs to be seen. What you need to do with your time and your resources and your energy. Vision helps you to see what's important, helps you to prioritise your day, prioritise your week, prioritise your year. Could I even say prioritise your five and ten and twenty years? Another image for vision is this one. Vision helps you stay on track in the direction you're heading. When you have clarity of vision in your life, it's easier to not be distracted going one way or the other. A bit like the horse on the front of the newsletter. It is not a racing guide, I promise you. But if that gets someone to open it up, I'm happy. It's like a horse with the blinders on. I used to think they were blinkers. I apologise, Mel. But I learned they were blinders and, and they blind the horse from their peripheral vision. It forces the horse to look forward. When we have clarity of vision at work in our life, it's like we're less, there's less potential to go left or right. 
We tend to stay on course. But the best image for me that works is this one. It's this image. This is what vision, I think, does for me. This is how I relate to the idea of vision best. For me, vision helps me to see above the day-to-day stuff. Vision helps me and gives me perspective on the bigger picture of life. Vision gives me hope that it's over there. Whereas when I'm down, it's hard to see over there. Vision does something to me where nothing is obstructing, nothing's in the way. I can just see across the clouds, as it were, to where the sun is. I, I, it, it gives me a sense of, of feeling like, oh, that's the way I've got to go, and that's why I'm going in that direction, and I can get there. It gives me a sense of hope. It gives me a context of my destination and where I am now. But you know what? Like that mountain, it does take a bit of work to climb a mountain. Has anyone found that before? Who here has recently climbed Mount Lofty? Well, you unfit Christians. And that's a pretty rich statement coming from me. And I'm just trying to walk around my block, let alone up Mount Lofty. But it takes a bit of work to climb this mountain. It takes a bit of work to get up there. You get a bit sweaty and you've got to climb. It's a bit of effort. You've got to plan it a bit. Vision is a bit hard, isn't it? For some of us, it's like, Ben, I've been around for 50 years. I've seen every vision ever. Vision is, is useless. It doesn't really do anything. For others, it's like, oh, I love vision. I just love it. I love what it does. I love what it does. I love what it does. Whichever way you look at it, though, vision is still hard. It's hard to climb that hill, to see, to have that perspective. Yet I believe that this big picture is something we are wired for. If you look at the Scriptures, every time God spoke, there was always a big picture in mind. They knew what their next step was, but they also had a big picture. There was a big picture ending to where they were going. They were able to put themselves in that context. You look through the scriptures, it's all through it. Even when they were captives, they knew that one day they would return. They knew that one day God would rescue them. Even Joseph, when he was Pharaoh, he had, a, he had this big picture vision that, you know what? This isn't my home. When I die, take my bones home. Take my bones home. And Moses, when they left, guess what he took? in the package of bones, I guess. I reckon we need to engage more with vision than less. Vision is wisdom of God for our, for our lives because it reminds us that we actually need God. You see, in my day-to-day, I can easily forget that I don't really need God. I'm just getting on with the day-to-day. But when I look at the bigger picture vision, it reminds me, no, Lord, I, I really do need you. I need you. And that's important for our culture and our society because I have a visa card that pretty much solves everything. True? If there's a problem, visa. I think they made an ad about that. If there's a problem, visa. Problem, visa. Problem. What, kids have got to go to that church camp thing. Visa. Kids have got to go to the sport. Visa. Kids are, visa. Visa just solves everything. I need a bigger picture. I need something bigger that goes beyond my visa. I need something more than that to wrestle with and to latch on to. Vision keeps our eyes on the prize. If I could say a few things about the the inner exercise of vision, what does vision do for me internally? I think it causes us to reimagine life. I think it causes us to, 
to tap into the promise and hope that we have in Christ. And it helps answer the question of why and gives us purpose, not just for the future, but for now. One of my favourite passages of Scripture was one where Jesus picked up one day, he headed into a synagogue, he was the guest teacher, he sat on the Moses seat, he pulled out the scroll and he read from a passage in Isaiah. I think the best way we can look at how vision affects our inner world is through this passage in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to, uh, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crowd of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild ancient ruins, restore places long, dev long devastated. They will renew ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. You imagine hearing that read. You imagine that vision, that picture coming into your spirit and you're in a place where you're currently mourning, you're currently, there's no hope and you hear that, that forces you to choose to reimagine what life is going to be like. That forces you to choose, do I enter into the hope of that passage or do I just stay where I am? That forces you to choose, do I really take these promises of God seriously or do I just stay stuck? Vision causes our inside, it causes in here to gain, to pick up, to run with. It causes, it challenges us to enter into the hope of God again and again and again. I love this passage. It immediately causes me to reimagine my life. Imagine if my life was like what was written here. Imagine if everything I did had these elements attached to it. Why not? This... This passage is for me. Can I say this passage is for you? Can I say this passage is for us? There is a lifetime of imagination here waiting for us to get into and to act upon. Maybe an outer exercise of vision you could describe as discipline and focus, planning and execution, faith and prayer. Let me just pick up a, an idea that we learned from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a guy who was a cupbearer. He would come in, select the finest wines and then give it to the king. He was a trusted guy. He was a trusted guy. When I was running a committee of, I don't like to say it now because it's a bit of mud around, but when I was running a committee of the old TAFE directors, one of my important tasks was to select the wine. Bad choice in terms of me selecting wine. I generally went by price and I read reviews. I didn't know what a good wine was. But I knew that when I got it right, the meeting was better. If I got it wrong, the meeting wasn't as good. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was close to the king. God had had him in that place. He was doing a great job. He was well looked after. He had a pension plan. He had a corporate card. He had a house near his work. He had free transport, free Wi-Fi. I mean, he had it all. 
And yet he hears a report in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. He hears this report. People have just come back from Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah knows the promises. He knows them. He's been reading about the promises. He knows them. But something happens to him. Something gets activated when he hears a report from his friends. They say, you know what, Nehemiah? The walls of Jerusalem are a mess. It is so embarrassing. We are the laughing stock of the area. No one can really live there. They're not safe. Bandits, raiders, you know, there's families trying to survive there and every night they get robbed. It's terrible. And something happens in Nehemiah. Something clashes with the promise that he knows is from God. Because Nehemiah knows that God has said that he will bring his people back. He will restore the city. He will, he will do something which will be a miracle. The city will be rebuilt. Nehemiah has this promise. And he hears this report. But what I find fascinating is the scripture does not say, and God said to Nehemiah, go and build the wall. It's not there. If you can find a manuscript with it, I'd love to read it. But it is not there. What happens to Nehemiah is a clash of what is reality and what is the promise. And this is an important message for some people here today. You have a, a fight going on in your life at the moment and there's a clash between the reality that you see and the promise of God. What do you do with that clash? What do you do with that inconsistency? Here's what Nehemiah did. He wept. It grabbed his heart so much that he cried and cried. Then he prayed before the Lord. He took what he felt before the Lord and he spilled out his heart. He said, Lord, this isn't right. Something must be done. And all of a sudden, he realized he's the cupbearer to the king. He's, him and the king are like this. So he prays and says, Lord, give me favor. And he goes back in there. And the king and him begin talking. And the king says, Nehemiah, go, go and do it. Go and fix it. And Nehemiah gets up off the floor after he realizes he's got approval. And he's got a plan ready. Can you believe it? He starts saying, well, you know what? I need some wood from this place. I need some bricks from that place. I need the MBN guys to install cable. I know that'll be 10 years away. I, I, I need all these things done. And the king goes, no worries. No problems. I'll sign on the dotted line. Go and do what you have to do. Vision does something to us. It, 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 it requires us to have discipline and focus. Nehemiah just didn't fall down and end when he heard this. No, he did something with what he had heard. He more than did something. He had a plan. There was preparation. And then when the moment came, he executed that plan. And of course, we have the rest of the book of Nehemiah to read through what happens. You see, the wisdom of vision is that it's not about us. When you look at the scriptures, when you look at the visions and messages and, and purposes, I, I find it hard to find where it's about me. It's always about someone else. Vision is from God and for God. Vision is from Father and for Father. Vision is, is, is beyond us. And that is one of the powerful things of vision. It lifts us out of myself and my world and places me within something bigger than what I am. Places me in something more than where I'm at. Vision is powerful. God involves us in his plan and his purposes. Isn't that amazing? God chooses us. He says, you're my participants. You're in my game plan. You're on my team. Here's the vision. Now go. And Nehemiah went and did it. 
For some of you today, God's reaffirming those things that he spoke to you long ago. That vision that you had, that purpose, that, that sense of destiny that you knew you had. God's reminding you of those things, even as we share now. He's not done with those things yet. It's not finished. It's not over. For, for others, it's, it's like, you know what? I really just need, Lord, give me some motivation. Help me just to get up and go. You've heard something that like Nehemiah heard, but your response hasn't been to weep. Your response hasn't been to act. You've just had no response. Maybe it's time for you to, to say, Lord, move my heart. Move me, Lord. Cause me to feel what you feel. Help me to see what you see so that something, something happens within me. I reckon Habakkuk 2 provides some great insight for us when we're talking about vision. And there's an article in the newsletter that I just encourage you to process that for yourself when you get the time. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, The Lord told me I will give you my message in the form of a vision. Write it clearly enough to be read at a glance. This verse comes after a chapter where Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, who's a Habakkuk here? Any Habakkuks? Yeah, I can't get past that either. Habakkuk has asked the Lord a question. Don't be afraid to ask God. Don't be afraid to ask Him. Don't be afraid to sit down and say, Lord, these are, these are, these are the things that are just too hard. Lord, these are the things that just don't make sense to me. Lord, these are the things that burden me. Don't be afraid to take them to Him. Don't be afraid to sit down with Him and speak to Him. Because that's what this man did. And he got a message back. I think too often we're surprised that God speaks to us. We become surprised that God actually wants to engage with us. That God wants to, wants to inform us and give us a message. He will speak to you. He will answer you. What's interesting though is that he gets told to write it down. Have you ever written out something God's given you? There's a lot of studies which show that the art of writing it down actually does something to us. And, and you know what? A few times I've, I remember teaching a few things back in my business days, a few subjects. One of them was like marketing. I didn't really know marketing. I just read a textbook and I tried to regurgitate it and I really didn't explain it very well. The challenge of this small verse is heavy. Because if I really want to teach marketing in a way that people can grasp, I really need to understand it. I really need to know what I'm talking about. I really, in fact, it's better if I've actually lived it a bit. Make sense? I mean, I can't imagine Mark Trelaw getting up talking about mathematical induction. I said to him a few weeks ago, you know what, in my world it was year 12, maths 2. I never really got that concept. I just kind of bypass that concept to be honest I still don't get it to this day there's a part of me that just wants to sit at his feet and learn it I don't know why that is um, but I'm not going to have the time for it so I haven't done that yet but when I retire I'm going to come to you and I'm going to learn mathematical induction you know if I had to teach mathematical induction I would have no chance who even knows what I'm talking about now Exactly. I can't even say what I want to do in a way that makes sense. The, the, the genius of this passage is the Lord says, you know what, what I'm going to tell you, make sure you can write it down clearly. Make sure that you can write it down so that if someone else reads it, they get it. 
That should be our Christian life. People should come across our lives and they should be able to read us and they get it. People should, people should interact with Ben and they should, after a few minutes, go, I get you. At a glance, I've, I've got what you're on about. Because it's been distilled to the point in my life where I can write it simply and clearly. The best mission statements, the best vision statements, the best slogans are the smallest and the simplest ones. But they're the hardest to come up with. It is so much easier to write a 10,000 word essay than a 300 word assignment. I would much rather waffle for 10,000 words and feel like I've done something than go through the discipline of a thousand-word paper. Oh, a thousand-word paper is so troublesome. So troublesome. Give me 10,000 words any day. I mean, can you imagine if I actually finished today at 11.30? Wouldn't that be a miracle? You see, that's the challenge. If I knew I could go until one o'clock, I would be happy as Larry just saying anything and everything. But the challenge is to distill the message down to the point where, where I can enter into the discipline of what needs to be said and I can say it clearly enough, and it shouldn't take that long. Are we going to have an amen? But there are a few blockers to vision. There are a few blockers to vision in your life. This is one of my favourite verses. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Any perfectionists here? Any procrastinators here? Notice they both start with P. This is a blocker. The vision, the task ahead is so big, is so much, it's too hard, it's not quite right, it's not the right price, it's not the right moment, I don't feel right, I don't feel ready. I haven't had Jesus appear to me in a vision and say, go forth young man, I haven't had, it's just not perfect. So you know what, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to move. This is a big blocker for vision in your life. The second blocker is something a little bit more complicated. 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 18. Again, Elisha is helping these kings who are swaying from following God and then abandoning God. And and this king in particular is under siege. He's under siege from the Assyrians. And so he goes to Elisha and says, Elisha, we're in trouble. What can we do? Elisha says, grab an arrow and fire it out the window. So he does. Brilliant. We're going to have some success here, says Elisha. Then Elisha says this. He, he, he says, pick up some arrows and whack the ground. He doesn't say how many times. He just says, pick up some arrows and whack the ground. Now, have you ever seen a kid excited to receive something? Have you ever seen a, someone who's really pumped when they, when they get something or when they've got something to do? I remember teaching my, my kids how to hammer a nail into some wood. And when I gave them a hammer, they just went for it. They had this opportunity to to bash a nail and show dad how they could do it. They built me something that I don't have a name for it to this day. It was about like that and about like this and it, it was brilliant design. A different sort of physics that we don't understand yet. They were so enthusiastic. They were so pumped. It was like their life depended on it. It was like everything in that moment was just about building and being there with dad and banging in nails. And Do you get the picture? So think about this man now. His kingdom. His kingdom is at risk. And the man of God, Elisha, has just said, shoot an arrow at the window. Okay, now that you've done that, you, you, you're going you're to win some battles. Then he gives another task. How does the man respond? How does the king respond? He, 
he simply picks up the arrows and he only hits it three times. That's nothing like my kid with a hammer. It's nothing like it. And Elisha says, why did you only do it three times? You should have done it five or six times and then you would have completely conquered. But because you've only done it three times, you're only going to win the next three battles. And then a few verses later, Elisha dies. (laughs) What's this story talking about? This story is talking about the motivation that we have within us, the enthusiasm that we have within us, the the desire to see it done, the the way we approach what God has given us to do. Do we do it with a passion? Do we do it with a fervor? Do we do it with a sense of victory that I am going to achieve it and it is going to work? Or do I just do the bare minimum? Do I just tick the box? Do, Do I just do enough to get away with it? Now, I understand there are times when we just have to get away with it. Are there any other getawayers here? I understand that. I can give you many illustrations in my life of just enough, tick and flick. But that's not the way we're meant to live for God. That's not the way we're meant to live our life here for Him. This, this is a blocker. We just treat the whole thing casually and we just go, yeah, okay, all right, Lord. Yeah, I've tapped it three times, all right. Whatever vision God's given for you, whatever purpose he's given for you, he wants, he wants that thing to be like a kid with a hammer building something for the first time, getting right into it with every ounce of energy and passion that you've got. As we come to finish, um, we're going to come back to the question, Father, what do you see? At the New Day program, I remember going with Nick to Blackwood, Blackwood High School and they've got a big auditorium there and about 200 year 10s would be there before us and we would have to talk to them about having a good life. And one of the things Nick always says is have a dream for your life. Have a, have a vision, have a plan for your life. Have something in your heart to go and do. And the third blocker, I believe, is this, is that we rely too often on ourselves or someone else to give us our dream and our vision and our purpose. We rely too much on what someone said about us that one time, how someone didn't say it quite right, or someone was a little bit offensive towards me. And so we end up carrying these burdens and these hurts and these frustrations and these sense of never being good enough. We carry these things around because we've taken things on from people that we shouldn't. You see, purpose and vision is not about me, it's about something more than me. And for the Christian, it's what God has called us to do. Therefore, the Father I should be asking is, Father in heaven, Father, what do you see in me? That should be our guidance. That should be the thing that we rest on. We should not draw our self-esteem and self-worth and sense of those other things on other people around about us. Yes, it's nice to get it and we ought to practice it. But it's not the source. And so this young guy, he wants to be a bobsledder. And his father comes and and says, this is over. I put you through the best universities. I'm not going to have you sliding like that. I've got other plans for you. And the cry of this young man's heart is, what do you see in me, Dad? And we're just going to watch this short clip. Yes. Junior. Junior. 
No, you listen to me, boy. You might not have done what you were asked, but you will do what you're told. You're coming home. Yeah, but father, you know, I just But want... nothing. I didn't send you to the finest school for you to go around sliding on your backside. You must be mad. Yeah, but the team needs me. I don't want to hear any more about it. Go and get your things. I'll wait in the lobby. Father, when you look at me, what do you see? I don't have time for games, Junior. Tell me what you see, please. All right, I'll tell you what I see. I see a lost little boy. Who is lucky to have a father who knows what's best for him? No, 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 you don't know what's best for me, father. I am not a lost little boy, father. I am a man. And I'm an Olympian. And I'm staying right here. some point in time you have to make a stand for what your purpose what your vision is for what God has for you to do and and whilst we could spend four hours unpacking father-son relationships um if we go to the last slide the father at the end of, of the picture is in the crowd and he's wearing a t-shirt of the Jamaican bobsled team that scene where he's there, is only up on the film. It's only in the picture for about one or two seconds. But you know what? It is so clear. It is so simple that I get it. Even me, I get it what's being said. Habakkuk says, write it clearly. Write it clearly. And this scene captures what is written clearly. This, this father has worked out something and he's going, you know what? I just love what you're doing and I want you to go for it and I'm supporting you and I'm cheering you on. Now, I just want to take this imagery, but I want, to, I want you to see Father God. Father God, it's almost like there's a T-shirt that he's wearing and it's got a picture of you on it. He's got a picture of you and he's wearing this shirt and, and on this shirt, it's so clear. The purposes and the plans that he has for you are for your good. The vision that he has for your life is brilliant. He's cheering you on. He's clapping you on. In fact, he's so committed to you that he sent Jesus into the world to come. He sent his son to come and make a way so that you could step up into what God's got for you. That is how convinced, that is, that is how powerful God believes in what he's got for you. Jesus is the promise for your life. And God is not finished with you wherever stage of life you're at. He is not done with you. He is not, there isn't an end point with that because we ought to be asking the question, Father, what do you see? I wouldn't be preaching this if it wasn't a hard question. The truth is, it is a hard question. The truth is, we hardly ever ask this. Father, what do you see? 
What do you see? What do you see? Can I encourage you that today, tomorrow, this week, give some time and say, Father, what do you see in me? Ask him for a glimpse of the purposes and plans he has for your life. You might have part of the picture, but you can be sure in God there is more and more and more.